And let's pray. Lord, we, we are reminded that once Jesus paid the horrible price of the penalty for our sin, he was raised and then he ascended and he is truly the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we have gathered here to give praise to his name to look into his precious word, cause us to grow in grace through the Holy Spirit's power. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're in John, beginning at John 17 this, this afternoon. And we're going to concentrate on five of the verses today. Let me just read those five verses in John 17. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now, Jesus had been telling his disciples that he was going to go away. He knew they were sorrowful, but he says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, whom I'm going to send to you, and we know that that will be the day of Pentecost, will be some 40 or more days henceforth, because that evening he's going to be arrested and will be crucified the next day, and then three days later rise from the dead. But he knew that he was uh, leaving them, and he said, I'm going to send you the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to guide you into all the truth. He will be with you permanently. You will have a power that you didn't have before, and I'm going to bring to the Holy Spirit is going to bring to your remembrance everything that I ever told you. And you only have to read through the book of Acts to see that is actually what happened. So Peter, who was cowardly, denied the Lord three times, and all the disciples left him. We're told that Jesus says, well, that's in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophets or Psalms, where it says, when the shepherd is struck down, the sheep will scatter. That's exactly what happened. And Peter <clears throat> will nonetheless, nonetheless be restored and he will give a marvelous sermon recorded in Acts 2. He'll give a marvelous sermon in Acts 3 and following in Acts 10 uh, at the house of Cornelius. His sermons are great theological treatises. So much what's interesting is the, uh, the Sanhedrin, after Jesus... Uh, had departed, and the day of Pentecost had occurred, and John and, and Peter are preaching in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin make this comment. Here's what they said. Aren't they fishermen who are uneducated? How do they know so much? See, they were baffled that this fisherman would know. He said, well, when they said they're not educated, in other words, that'd be us today saying, not seminary educated, so how does he seem to have that high level of understanding? Because of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has said that his departure is soon, and this is Acts 17, the whole, I mean, John 17, the whole chapter is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Part of this prayer, and what's interesting is if you look at verse 1, these things Jesus spoke in lifting up his eyes to heaven. In other words, 
He is making this prayer right in front of the disciples. They heard this prayer. And this is very similar uh, to the fact that when Jesus, it says he lifted up his eyes, which was a custom how Jesus prayed. If we were to look back at John 11 in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, when he goes there uh, to raise Lazarus, where is his tomb? It says he lifts up his eyes to the heavens and he prays verbally in front of not only the disciples, but all those people that had come to mourn with Mary and Martha over the loss of their brother Lazarus. So all these people were going to be witnesses of this incredible miracle, and they were all witnesses of his prayer in John 11, where he prays in their presence for their sake. Jesus wanted his disciples to hear this prayer. So we could say for all practical purposes, it is a family prayer. It is a departing prayer. It's a family prayer because it's him and his disciples and their families. You know, when we're adopted into the kingdom of God, we're adopted as sons and daughters. So, and that's why we refer to each other as brothers and sisters. We're all one great spiritual family. So this was a a a family prayer that Jesus had with his disciples. And how did Jesus begin the prayer? Just take a look. He says, the hour, he says, Father, the hour has come. Well, what hour is that? Well, within a, maybe less than an hour or so, the Sanhedrin with Judas is going to be coming to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it is imminent. So the hour is at hand. And what we need to understand here, he says, the hour has come, and he says, that you may glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee. I've already made mention of this earlier messages on John, that when he says the hour has come, remember, as Luke records it in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, it says when that arresting party comes with Judas and they're going to take him, Jesus made this comment to him. He says, when I was in the temple speaking, you didn't come against me, but now you come against me. And Jesus says, because the hour, it says, this is your hour, called it your hour, and the power of darkness has come. In other words, it is Satan. We know it was Satan who, who filled Judas's heart when at, we're at the Last Supper to go out and betray Jesus. Uh, it is Satan who is energizing the whole thing. It is Satan that is behind the Sanhedrin and their absolute irrational hatred of Jesus. And it was, in many ways, irrational. He was doing nothing but good, and they hated him for it. He, he did all these miracles, but they hated him for it. And, it, and Jesus says, the hour has come of darkness. And, but he says, in my death, I'm going to glorify, the Father is going to glorify me, and then I'm going to glorify the Father in this hour of darkness that has come. Well, <clears throat> what we see in this, how was Jesus glorified in his death? Well, we know from the scripture that <clears throat> his whole purpose of coming into the world was what? Matthew one twenty one, what the angel revealed to, to Mary and to Joseph. He says, uh, this holy seed that you're carrying, Mary, is no ordinary child. It's a child conceived of the Holy Spirit. And you shall call him Jesus, meaning for he shall save his people from their sins. The whole purpose of the incarnation was to save sinners. 
That was the whole purpose. And after all, if you know, I could just go and just mention what John says in his opening chapter, John 1, 14, where it says, <clears throat> he's talking about how the word was with God and the word was God and it was in the beginning with God. Well, in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So how was he going to be how was the Father going to glorify the Son? By the fact that the Son will do what is necessary to redeem sinners. Because God's justice had to be satisfied. And <clears throat> we're told that Jesus, particularly in Matthew sixteen twenty one. He'd been telling his disciples, he says, look, the Son of Man has to go to Jerusalem. He must be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will kill him, but he will rise on the third day. So <clears throat> the glorification of Jesus involves this. It involves his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. Or we could say his coronation at the right hand of God the Father uh, upon his ascension. So the Son will be glorified because the Son will do what was required of him. Remember Jesus several times told his disciples, he says, I always do the will of my Father in heaven, always. And if you may recall, when John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan, Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And that's when John says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And when John baptized Jesus, the dove came down, the Holy Spirit, and that symbol of a dove, and an audible voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, why was he well pleased? Well, Jesus is always doing the will of his father. And Jesus always knew his ultimate mission was to go to Jerusalem and die. It had to happen. No ifs, ands, or buts. And so we see here, and, and the fact that it had to happen, you know, in, in Matthew 16, 21, when Jesus is informing the disciples that he had to go and be delivered up, that's when Peter said, uh-uh, nope, we're not going to let that happen, Jesus. It says that, that Peter was rebuking Jesus, of all things. And, and then that's when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Jesus turns it on Peter and says, for your desires are the desires of the world, not the desires of the Father. I have to go and be delivered up. It has to happen. And you see, for you to try to prevent that to happen is basically saying the whole plan of redemption will not take place. Now, what is Satan's desire? To destroy people. His, one of his names is Abaddon, called the destroyer. Jesus said he's a liar. He's a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning. He deceived uh, Eve in the garden, and it led to mankind's fall, Adam and Eve. Um, and Satan knew very well, because when he told Eve, Surely you're not going to die. Has God really said, if you eat of that fruit, you will die? So Satan is a liar because he knew that's exactly what God said. And he knew that if she partook of the fruit, that it would bring about uh, immediately spiritual death, we know, and then eventually their physical death. So what's odd about this whole thing about Satan is this. 
He's behind the feeling of Judas to go betray Jesus. He's behind the Sanhedrin in their hostility towards uh, Jesus. He's doing everything he can to um, foil, to make things rough for Jesus. And yet, he doesn't fully realize (laughs) that in killing Jesus, he just sealed his own doom. Because the promise of Genesis 3.15 is this in the curse. It says, when God was spelling out the consequences to all the parties involved, he said to the serpent, you're going to crawl on the, uh, henceforth on your belly and eat dust. He says, you will bruise the seed of the woman's heel, but then the woman shall crush your head. So here, Satan did everything he could to get Jesus murdered. But in getting Jesus murdered, it was his ultimate undoing. So we see here, Jesus, when he's praying to the Father, for the Father to glorify him, and for uh, the Son to glorify him, He is thinking of his entire mission to come and that he's going to pay the penalty for our sins and but he's going to be raised on the third day and he will ascend to the Father uh, and sit at his right hand. So we see how did Jesus glorify the Father? Because it says, Father, that the glorify me that the Son will glorify you. How did Jesus glorify the Father? By becoming obedient to the point of death. That's how he glorified the Father. Because what are the consequences of sin? It's death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, and as 1 John 4.10 says, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his own Son, to be the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus is glorifying the Father in the sense that the Father's justice is satisfied. Because you can't get it, you and I can't get into heaven without some the penalty being paid. And we can't get into heaven without the perfect righteousness of Jesus applied to us. So the whole work of redemption that the Lord Jesus is going to be doing is glorifying the Father. It is accomplishing everything the Father sent him to do. So any task that a servant has carries out on behalf of the master, if they do it faithfully, then they've glorified the master. And Jesus glorified his heavenly Father. We know on Calvary's cross, Jesus uh, brought glory to the Father. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 13 and And when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When... He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. In other words, it was on Calvary's cross that Genesis 3.15 came to pass when Jesus, in his death, crushed the head of Satan because it says, 
in my dying for sinners and forgiving all of their sins, I just triumphed over you. Remember, what is Satan's desire but to destroy souls? And the death of Jesus has foiled the horrible plan of Satan to destroy souls. So Jesus did triumph over Satan on the cross. And so the cross and the crown that Jesus will get glorifies both himself and glorifies the Father. You know, one of the great prophecies of the Old Testament, maybe one of the greatest, is Isaiah 53. I want you to turn to Isaiah 53 and take a look at verses 11 and 12. All about the suffering servant. And at verse 11 through verse 12, we read, the father is talking, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. The father will see it and be satisfied of the anguish of the suffering servant's soul. By his knowledge, the righteous one my servant will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So what we see here is the father says in the suffering of the son, he will justify the many. And when he does that, I'm going to, verse 12, allot him a portion with the great. We're going to see exactly how the New Testament says that. So Jesus, in his prayer in John 17 desires to glorify the Father and in conformity to and in pursuing of his commission in this life to do the will of the Father, we're told in John 17, 2, thou gavest him authority, meaning thou the Father, he's praying to the Father, thou has given him, the Son, authority over all mankind that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. So the Father has given to the Son all authority then to pass on that with that authority to do something on behalf of others to fulfill the will of the Father. Now, when he says in verse 2 that thou, the Father, has given him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. Now, we've already made a comment about this, and we're going to go back to John 6 here in a second. That great doctrine that we see Jesus teaching here is the reformed doctrine of effectual calling. I want you to turn back. Now, notice what Jesus said. Thou hast given him authority that thou hast given him whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. So the Father has given the Son some whom the Son will give eternal life. Jesus is simply reiterating what he said in John 6. I want you to turn back to John 6. Look at verse 37. Jesus is saying here, but I say to you that you have seen, well, all that the Father 
gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And then verse 44, John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, to be raised up on the last day means you have eternal life. You've got the victory. So Jesus says, the Father has given me some. Who are those? Well, it's just talked about this morning, you know, by reasoning with Scripture, with Scripture, it has to be the elect of God, whom Paul says God chose before the foundation of the world. There are some before the foundation of the world the Father chose out of his grace and mercy by no motivation other than his own good counsel of his own will to save some and then to give justice to those who don't believe in him. So there are some who are going to have eternal life. And Jesus says, all that you gave to me, I will give eternal life. Not maybe, they will have eternal life. I will raise them up on the last day. Which is a, a proof, by the way, that there is a bodily resurrection. We've been talking about that and some today denying that. No, uh, to be raised up means to be raised up physically on the last day. The last day of what? The last day of history. The last day of which Martha, remember when Martha, when Jesus came to Bethany and he waited deliberately long enough so that Lazarus, we're told, would die, he deliberately did that so he would die in order that he would do the miracle. And then, you know, they are, Mary and Martha, they are beside themselves in grief. And they said, Jesus, you, you were his friend. If you were here, he wouldn't have died. He said, well, he will live again. And Martha said, yeah, on the last day. See, even Martha knew that the Bible talked about a physical resurrection at the last day. She had no idea that she was going to get a foretaste of that with her brother rising from the dead. So what we see here, <clears throat> the scope and the design of the atonement that the Son is doing to glorify the Father gives eternal life to those recipients. I want you to turn over to, to Hebrews 12 for a moment. Hebrews 12, and look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, Surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I want you to think, think carefully about this, what that says. Jesus knew all along that he had to die. He knew he was going to be crucified. He knew what crucifixion was. And nonetheless, 
Remember, I mean, we're going to see when Jesus was praying, we're told that he, he prayed uh, sweat of, with drops of blood. It was so intense, which actually is a medical uh, phenomenon. If some people have been known under such great stress to bleed, to sweat, their sweat actually is blood. So this was something Jesus was actually physically experiencing because he, he realized what he was about to have to endure within a few hours. And that's why in one sense his father, is there any other way? And then he immediately says, no, not my will, but you will be done. Why was Jesus willing and knowingly going to the cross to be spit on, to be mocked, to endure great physical pain, may not have fully, well, probably realized that the father would have to forsake him, but he didn't experience that until the moment the father did turn his back on him. Then all of a sudden, he sensed something he had never sensed in his whole earthly existence. What it means not to have the love of God with you. This is where the scripture, our confessions say, that's where Jesus went to hell. What he endured on the cross in his suffering and the abandonment of the father so that he could pay the atoning price for sin, that is what hell is, being forsaken of God. That's what it is. And he experienced it. But get this. Let this sink in, really. But for the joy, look what Hebrew says, but for the joy set before him, he was willing to go through it. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that precious? That Jesus would willingly do that because of the joy that he knew that when he went through it, he would secure forever eternal life for all those whom the Father had given him. What a Savior. What a Savior. Why, it's, we should just every day thank him. Jesus, what you did for me. What can I say? What you did for me. You endured this so that you would have joy in seeing us raised from the dead one day at the end of the world when you come again. <clears throat> You know, John, turn back to John 17. John 17, 3 really is a succinct expression of what eternal life is. Notice what he says. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You know, the Bible talks about we have a tendency to think of eternal life as something, because it says eternal future, which it is. But here, another place in Scripture, you know the moment you believed in Jesus? Eternal life began for you and me. And it's just going to be uh, culminated one day at the last day when we're raised from the dead. That's why the Bible talks about, especially in the book of Romans, Romans chapter eight, says that when the sons of that, you know, during the fall, when Adam fell into sin, his sin affected the whole cosmos. And the whole creation was cursed. You remember uh, God said to Adam, you know, the, the earth that uh, was easily tillable is not going to be, you're going to have to do it by the sweat of your brow now, Adam. It's going to yield, there's going to be thorns and thistles you're going to have to deal with. Romans 8 says, the creation groans for a day of redemption. When the sons of God are revealed, and it says, when the sons of God are revealed and the redemption of our bodies... That is our hope. Jess could have brought this out in this morning message. 
the great hope of the resurrection of Jesus is that we're going to be resurrected one day. We're going to be restored. Adam was created as a body and soul. And when he sinned, it ripped Adam, mankind, and Eve apart at the very essence, separating body and soul. It was never meant to be that way. So if redemption is going to be finalized, it has to be finalized with body and soul brought together again. And that's why Romans 8 says the redemption of our bodies. And that's why if you deny a bodily resurrection, you've just took heart out of the glory of the gospel in its promise. That's why it's such a terrible thing. So Jesus, we're told he is the only way of salvation. Eternal life is not just thinking about knowing something about Jesus. It's it's having a relationship with Jesus, like Jess talked about this morning. It's really knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is eternal life. And so that eternal life begins now, and it will culminate one day when we're raised from the dead. The Scripture says, there is no other way of salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me says, and there is salvation in no other. He says, uh, he who does not enter by the door to the sheepfold, but seeks to climb up some other way is both a thief and a robber. I'm the door. He who enters by me shall have eternal life. So again, who did Jesus come to save? He came to save his elect. He came to save his people. You know, one of the the things, you know, sometimes the Arminian world, those of an Arminian persuasion, and there could be some merit to maybe why they accuse us Calvinists of being morose, (laughs) which we shouldn't be morose in spirit, we should have the most joy of anybody because we realized if it wasn't but for the grace of God, we would be perishing in our sins, right? God didn't have to choose us. I mean, the, the whole point of Romans 9 is God was under no obligation to save any of us. He wasn't. And the fact that you all who believe in Jesus here today means that you are elect from the foundation of the world. But there was a time maybe in your life you you weren't a believer in Jesus. I know there was a time in my life until I was 18. I knew consciously I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know anything about it. That may be some of y'all's testimony. But guess what? And there were some times when, when I was a kid going out places where my mama would not have liked to know that where I was going to a trestle where you could fall off or run through the tunnel real quick before the train comes so you don't get hit by the train <laughs> or sliding off the cliff. I remember one time going out there, I started to slide off the cliff and my brother grabbed my hand and saved me. Another case, getting away from the, the, the uh, train coming through the tunnel, I climbed up, my brother grabbed me again and there was a baby rattlesnake I was about to step on. We captured that thing, took it home to mama. She wasn't all that thrilled that we brought home a baby rattlesnake. All those times, you know, you may have experienced it. I should have maybe died that, that day in that car accident, but I didn't. Why? Because you were the elect of God. Because one day God was going to bring you to saving faith. See, the doctrines of grace are not cold They are precious when you think about it. They really are. So who did Jesus come for? For us. All those whom the Father had given him. 
All those for whom Jesus would die. Again, Jesus doesn't die. Well, let me rephrase it. I've said this before. There is no one in hell for whom Jesus died. Not one. Because when you understand the nature of the atonement, the atonement actually saves. Not maybe, not if, it actually does save. The blood of Jesus actually does save. So there's not one drop of Calvary's blood that was shed on that day 2,000 years ago that was shed in vain. No, the scripture says we are saved by the precious blood of the lamb and it will come to pass. So John 17, four, Jesus said, I glorified thee on the earth having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. I've told you in the past that Greek tenses are significant. Of course, the English language conveys what? Something that's already happened, right? That's past tense. Well, in Greek, there's not a past tense, but there is an aorist tense, which is the equivalent to our past tense, means something has happened, point action. It's a done deal. Now, what's it? if you, you read that and you go, wait a minute, why did Jesus say, it has been accomplished. He hasn't gone to the cross yet, right? It hadn't happened yet. So why did he say, I have accomplished already? Redemption is not accomplished technically until Jesus died on the cross and gave up the ghost. But Jesus speaks that way because it's a certain thing, right? It's a certain thing. Nothing was going to stop it. That's why Peter says on the day of Pentecost, delivered up by the predetermined plan of God and nailed to the cross by you, by godless hands. Predetermined. So Jesus can speak of it as a certainty even though it actually historically hasn't transpired yet. But that's, there's nothing inconsistent about that. It just goes to show like this. You know, you can tell some friends sometimes who have problems with predestination or election, asking this, do you believe in prophecy? Well, yeah. Oh, you just affirmed predestination. <laughs> there is not one. That's all that prophecy is a predestined event, a statement beforehand of a certainty that will come to pass. That is what prophecy is. That is what predestination is. So Jesus says, Father, essentially, I, I, I have accomplished everything you gave me to do. You sent me into this world for one reason, and that is to save your people. And I've done it. I've done it. And now I want you to glorify me. Glorify him how so? Look at verse five. Glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. We could probably summarize this best way is let the Apostle Paul summarize it for us. Turn to Philippians 2 as we end here. Turn to Philippians 2. And let's have, we're going to start at verse 5 and we're going to read down through verse 11. Follow carefully. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, meaning he was God, that's what that means, he did not regard equality with thing a, grasp, a thing to be grasped. In other words, 
something to be held on so much that he would not want to dispense with it. Okay? Verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's stop right there. Jesus says, the glory that I had with you, I didn't hold on to it so much that I wasn't willing to go and become a man and be humiliated for 33 years. I was willing to go and be the redeemer. He had been with the Father from all eternity. The glory of being of the triune God from all eternity. And the second person of the Trinity says, I'll go, I will go, and I will become like them. Because yes, I understand. I have to be like them in order to save them. I have to be like them in order to shed real blood. I have to die because the first Adam blew it and brought death on the human race. And I've got to go and undo what Adam did, but I'm willing to do it. So he became obedient to the death of the cross. So what? So he did that. In other words, I accomplished all that transporting John 17 into this text. In other words, I've, I did everything you sent me to accomplish. So what, did, what was the reward of the Father? Well, let's take a look. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, therefore links the work of Jesus' atoning work. Therefore, God highly exalted him bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus obeyed and went to Calvary, the Father says, all right, you finished the task. And now you're going to come back with me with the glory that you once had. It's going to be restored. And you have dominion over all the universe. Psalm 2 says, and read that sometime, it says the Father said, to his only begotten son, I've given the nations to thee as your inheritance. All the nations. He owns it all. And it says, I'm giving you a name above every name, King of kings, Lord of lords. And there will be one day when every knee will bow and will confess you as Lord. Now, some will, have, will confess him as Lord to the saving of their souls. Some will confess him as Lord to the destruction of their souls in hell forever. I can, only, I, can, I can point you to Matthew 25 when Jesus says, when he separates the sheep from the goats, and he says, there were some of you that did not visit me when I was sick, did not give me food when I was hungry and uh, water when I was thirsty, and you didn't clothe me when I was naked. You didn't visit me in prison. You know what the goats said there in Matthew 25? Lord, when did we not do that? They called him Lord. Did do, is he going to do him any good? No. But they do realize on that day, that is the day of reckoning. And that is the day that Paul preached to the Gentiles in Athens in Acts 17, where it says, and I'll close with this, 
when Paul, and Jess alluded to this, when Paul came into Athens, he debated in the Areopagus, which is where the philosophers used to gather, and debate the latest philosophy, and they would, they would go at it and see who would, if they could best one another. So you had the Stoic and the Epicureans philosophers that used to debate in the Areopagus. Both of those philosophical schools did not believe in a life after death, period. You've heard the thing, let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Well, that's what the Epicureans believe. This is it. And there was a uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon beer commercial years ago. Grab Pabst Blue Ribbon because you only go around once in life. (laughs) So grab for all the gusto. You know, the, the Greeks, they didn't believe in life after death. So here comes this, this guy preaching a resurrection of, from the dead. Now, just think about how that must have impacted those philosophers, the know-it-alls. Oh, that's why they called him an idle babbler in Acts 17. You know what that meant? You're a pseudo-philosopher, Paul. You're not, this resurrects the dead, seriously. You know how Paul deals with that? It's like Jess mentioned this morning, just because you don't believe, does it change anything? <laughs> just because someone doesn't believe that, just means they're being a fool. So to these Greek philosophers who thought it was ridiculous for somebody being raised from the dead. Here's what Paul said, verse 30 and 31 of Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he is appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. <laughs> so there will be a day where some of those Stoic and Greek philosophers are going to be bowing their knee to King Jesus and say, Oh no, those. Crazy Christians were right after all. They were right after all. But it would do them no good. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we stand amazed at the glory of your word. We we, we stand amazed mostly of the glory of what Jesus did for us. He saved us from our sins. Hallelujah. Help us every day to give thanks that you loved us that much, Jesus, that you endured the cross for the joy of raising us up to glory one day. In your precious name we pray, amen.